0: Do turn in your Bibles to the Book of Judges, chapter fourteen. Be reading the whole chapter, Judges fourteen. Let's go to God in prayer, asking for His help. My gracious God, we are blind, without the sight that is given us through the ministry of the Son the ministry of the Spirit, without the ministry of you, Father, giving us the Son and the Spirit. So we do pray that we would see the Son in this text through the Spirit ministry of our Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This is Judges chapter 14. Hear now the word of God. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines, Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, They brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing, of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with you with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It's hard to decide what is the best chapter in Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, but chapter five rises as a legitimate contender. The title of that chapter lives up to its name. It's, it was riddled with riddles. And before rap battles became cool, and so they are, Bilbo and Gollum tested each other, tried each other with riddles, by the way, women... Uh, I came up with this introduction before you had the uh, baby shower, Uh, so it looks like God was working in your account and mine around the same time. But Gollum would say something like this, what has roots as nobody sees, is taller than trees, up, up it goes, and yet never grows. Now that riddle was too easy for Bilbo. Is it for us? Does anyone know the answer to that? Mountain, yes. Yes. It was not easy for me. Bilbo would say, "'30 white horses on a red hill. First they chomp, then they stomp, then they stand still.' Gollum hisses, "'Chestnuts, chestnuts, teeth, teeth!' Did we know it was teeth? Maybe some of you did. Or Gollum would say, "'Voiceless it cries, wingless flutters, toothless bites, mouthless mutters.' Bilbo says, "'Wind, wind, of course.' Was that in, of course, for us? It was not for me. And on and on, Bilbo and Gollum would go. The chapter is really a lot of fun, trying to figure out the riddles before, uh, before Tolkien gives it up for us. In my case, again, I failed at every point until I was told. And for Gollum, who was expert in riddle telling, expert in riddle guessing, the final riddle was not fun. It was not fun for him. It was frustrating. It was very frustrating. And if you know the story, his failure to get the riddle right meant Bilbo's escape. Well, chapter 14 of the book of Judges is riddled with riddles. Samson, the lowercase j, judge, has some riddles. And the Lord, the uppercase j, judge, has a riddle of his own. And from the standpoint of the reader, we are blessed with the meaning As we go from verse to verse, we we know where Samson was, and we know then the meaning of his riddle. But if you're Samson's parents, if you're Samson's new wife, if you are those 30 men, those groomsmen of sorts, the riddles told become sources of frustration as long as the meaning remains concealed. But the Lord has a riddle of his own, one whose meaning is alluded to near the beginning of the passage, but is not revealed until the chapter is all said and done. The Lord's riddle is never meant to remain concealed forever, and thankfully so, because much is at stake. Indeed, salvation is at stake. Our own lives are full of mysteries, riddles, if you will, and we often wonder when we will know. The meaning of all of the providential outworkings. When will we have all of the answers? When will all of the dots be connected? Because certainly we want those dots connected now, and we want to know the connection now. The Lord uses his weak servants' sins and sufferings to reveal his secret of salvation. That's the main point in this text this morning. And we saw last time that God set apart someone special for a unique service. Remember that there was nothing in Samson in particular. There wasn't anything in him as a man that moved God to set him apart. It wasn't that God looked down the corridors of time and saw what a great, mighty warrior Samson would be and then say, yes, that's my guy. I'm going to use him for mighty things because he is. He's just going to be so great. No, the angel of the Lord we saw last time, imposes the Nazarite vow, the law of the Nazarite, upon Samson from birth. Sets him apart. And you know the story of Samson. He is not the greatest person in the world. He has a lot of weaknesses, which we'll see in this chapter and the next, the following. But He was called by God to deliver. As we saw last week, he was called by God to begin to deliver the Israelites, from the hands of the Philistines. So what does this specially set-apart man do? How does he um, appropriate this gracious calling from God? Is it immediately uh, a warm reception of this Nazarite law, and he is going to grow well into this law? Is going to abide by these vows? Well, the first three verses of the text, tell us that he's not off to a good start. Remember, he he says to to his parents, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. And so remember Samson's background. Remember, he comes from a very stable home life. He comes from godly parents, parents who who know the Levitical system, who know the approved offerings from God, and even offered to the Lord burnt offerings, grain offerings. And remember that, that word from Mrs. Manoah in the uh, last chapter, that if, we, if God had meant to kill us, He would not have accepted our offerings. He would not have shown us wonderful things that we would one day behold. And so there was great faith, a gift from God. There was great reverence for the angel of the Lord, another great gift from the Lord. And here are parents who sought to raise up their child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And before, looking at Samson in particular, can some of us commiserate with these parents because we know, he says, get that Philistine daughter as a wife for me. She is right in my eyes. He demands, get her for me. She is right in my eyes. And certainly we then recall that refrain in this book. That there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's not a good statement. Because what do enslaved people do with what they think is freedom? They they use that supposed freedom to spend it on their sinful passions. And so he says to his dad, get her for me. She's right in my eyes. But Manoah says, but son, is she right in God's eyes? You need to think about this. Isn't there some woman in, in, in Israel? And in all of Israel, can't there be someone else? And you have to go to these uncircumcised Philistines. You do know, son, that they are our oppressors, right? They're not our friends. So it's helpful for us to remember that Manoah's objection to the Philistines has nothing to do with their ethnicity, but everything to do with the gods that the Philistines served. And Mr. and Mrs. Manoah loved the Lord. They loved the angel of the Lord. They beheld the angel of the Lord. And they were accepted by God, by grace. And they devoted their son to the Lord, and they wanted nothing. They wanted no one to steer their son away. They didn't want their son to to wander, to deviate from the path of righteousness. They wanted their son in those paths of righteousness. Surely, this is the heart of all godly parents who seek to raise up a godly seed. That is what God tells the Israelites in Malachi, the thing that he wanted. He wanted a godly seed. And Mr. and Mrs. Manoah wanted this. This is what we all want. If we entrust ourselves to the Lord, certainly we want to entrust our children to the Lord as well. This is the heart of of every Christian friend, family member for the other. We want each other to know Christ, to know Christ in every aspect of their lives, to be subject to Christ in all things. To lean wholly upon the everlasting arms of our Lord. And it is baffling when those that we treasure dearly show signs of stubborn disobedience, as Samson shows here. Get her for me. She is right in my eyes. Doesn't matter what the Lord says, doesn't matter this vow of separation. None of that matters. What matters is she's pretty. And I want to be with her. But Mino and his wife, didn't know what will be revealed soon enough. And the application point here is that parents don't need to know everything but the one who does. And it's not just true for, for parents, but for all of us. As we struggle to, to teach our kids the way of the Lord, we can't control our kids' behavior. Yeah, we can steer them in the right direction, but eventually they have to make a profession of faith in Christ, and we would love to be able to force that upon them. We would love for them to do everything that we want them to do and to turn out exactly the way we think they ought to turn out. But we are not God. So here we have a reminder that we must, as we are calling our children to do, we must ourselves do, which is, again, to lean upon Christ, to entrust ourselves to Him who is worthy of trust, who keeps covenant, who is faithful in all His ways, and who is omniscient, who knows all things, who is all wise, who is all good, who is patient, steadfast in His love and His commitment to us as people. And at the same time, we can parent with hope, knowing that the end of the story hasn't been written, uh, in, as far as we're concerned. I mean, it is. It is written. But we don't know where the Lord is taking every single piece, where He has taken every single person, every single interaction, every single It seems to be a deviation. Maybe it is a deviation. The Lord is working out all things according to the counsel of his will for his glory, for our good, and that includes what happens with our own children. Just a reminder then of of entrusting our children to the Lord and entrusting ourselves to the Lord who knows much better than we do. While Samson heads down to Timnah to get his wife, a lion was lurking, Samson and his parents first went down to the vineyards of Timnah, and here our eyes ought to perk up a little bit, because we saw last time that Samson is a Nazarite. And wine is is a good thing. It's a blessing, however, to be withheld from those who are undergoing the Nazirite law. So we have Nazarite in the vineyard. And so at least externally there is a temptation. The question before Samson is, will you drink? Will you you take the wine? There's no indication here that he broke his vow when he was tempted by the vineyards. Perhaps he was too busy fighting a lion even to think about drinking. But we see that the Lord rushes upon Samson, and Samson single-handedly, in fact bare-handedly, tears this lion to pieces like one would tear a young goat. And I laughed at that when I read that because how does one tear a young goat? Perish the thought that I would tear one of my chickens. I don't know if I could do that. I know some of us could, happily. But Samson's not tearing up a chicken. He's not tearing up a young goat. He's tearing up a lion, which is amazing. This is remarkable. And he could not have done any of that if he was leaning on his own strength. It was only because the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him that he was able to take down this lion. As God was, as God was with him, he shows Samson what Samson is capable of when he is empowered by the Spirit. Samson is capable of resisting temptations, Samson is capable of neutralizing threats. He can say no to the wine, he can take down the lion when the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And this ought to be an encouraging reminder for all of us. Without the Holy Spirit, we are defeated. But with the Spirit of the Christ, we are more than conquerors. With the Spirit of the Christ, we can resist temptations. With the Spirit of the Lord indwelling us, we can resist the devil, and we're told he will flee from us. As we lean upon Christ, as we recalls the words of Scripture as we pray to our Father in Heaven, as we pray in the Spirit. We can resist. We'll never get it perfect. But we are not defeated. We are, Paul says, more than overcomers. We must then Avail ourselves of this spirited ministry. We're thankful that God has given us the spirit. The spirit will not leave us. The spirit won't forsake us. Just like the father won't leave us. Just like the son won't leave us. We have been sealed with the spirit. The spirit always indwells us. But like many of us, Samson will not often appreciate these spirit successes Samson kept from his parents the secret of killing the lion, and when some days later the lion's carcass was indwelt by a swarm of bees, he ate honey freely, and he gave freely. I don't know if your minds turned to the Adam and Eve episode of Eve eating the the forbidden fruit and then giving some to her husband. Something like that is going on here as well. He who is not to deal with death eats sweetness from the dead, defiling himself, and he gives the honey to his unsuspecting parents, thereby defiling them as well. And then in verses 10 and following, as if he disregarded his spirit-led resistance of temptation, he now prepares a feast for his wedding. And this word for feast means drinking party. It is not unreasonable then, to suppose, to deduce that here we have the Nazarite that drinks. And the application point then is that we have all sinned and fallen short to the glory of God. Something that one of our Sunday school teachers reminded the children of today. The special judge fails to avail himself of the Spirit, and he chooses to do what is right in his own eyes, and he ends up defiling himself and others in the process. Samson could not even keep this Nazarite vow. Which to us, externally anyways, seems like it's not that hard of a vow to keep. You might want to try wine, but you can live life without drinking wine. Millions of people do it. You might not like that long hair getting in your face, but you could just, you know, tie it back. You don't have to cut it. And it's not common when a a body is dying in the process and is about to touch you. You can just move around or just avoid a funeral. Those, externally speaking anyways, aren't very difficult to comply. Pretty easy. But we must remember that this Nazarite vow was not God's perfect standard. That is to say, it is God's perfect law. There's no defect in the Nazarite law. But it is to say that the Nazarite law was not imposed on all of people. We don't have to keep this law. Not every Israelite had to keep this law. In fact, it was, in most cases, a law entered voluntarily. I want to show special devotion to the Lord, and so I'm going to undertake this vow for a time to demonstrate my faithfulness, to call upon God for His, His grace. The Nazarite vow isn't the moral law of God summarized. We know the moral law of God summarized are the Ten Commandments. And all of those other laws in the Old Testament are some kind of expression of these ten laws. That is the revealed moral law of God for us. And if we try to keep those, in order to be justified before God, we will find that every point we fail. At no point have we kept any of the Ten Commandments in thought, word, or deed perfectly. And to the degree that we do keep some of them, or any of them, it's only because we, as branches, are attached to the vine, which is Christ, who is the perfect law keeper. And so surely Samson is reminded how his own self-seeing search ends up in drastic failure. Surely we must be humbled when we are reminded of our many shortcomings, of our daily sins. Every single day, we ask God for grace. Why? Because we know that we will fail. We know that we will not treat our spouses well. We will not treat our children well. We might say a a nasty word to our boss. And on and on. Our problems are not foundationally physical, but they are spiritual. They are a sinful nature. Now, recently, I was given a book for the purpose of some levity, some laughter. And the sad part was that the author of this book, not the gift giver, the author was completely serious. This is a 1922 book, and in this book, the author sought to explain why we are what we are, And this book was a result of 15 years of study of psychology, criminology, insanity, and an in-depth analysis of character. And in the chapter, real chapter, okay, the chapter titled, The Shape of Your Head, Your Character, The Real Why, okay, the author analyzes the various shapes of heads, the long head, the short head, the high head, the low head, the wide head, the narrow head, the round head, and the square head that covers them all. But apparently, you can tell a lot about a man or a woman by the size and the shape of the head. Here's a quote. The head that is over 5.35 of an inch in width, measuring just above the ear through the head, is called in this science the wide head. A wide head, in general, means aggressiveness, energy, force, both destructive and constructive, depending upon the other measurements of the head and features. The author says similar things about the various head features. You, you might be uh, an arrogant person, you might be passive, all because of the, sh- the shape, the size of your head. And do you see the worldview underlying this? It is the same that dominates today, that all of our actions are determined by our physical features, by our physical nature, If you're an arrogant person, just blame that high head of yours. But dear saints, I hope you see the problem is not with the physical flesh, but with the sinful flesh. It's with our sin nature. We do not, we're not transformed by changing the size of our heads. Which would be a weird endeavor and probably painful. But the problem is with that sin nature, with that original sin, and all, as the Confession says, all the actual transgressions which proceed from it. The problem is with us without Christ. Let's look at the final secret of Samson's in the riddles that he told. Verse 14, he says, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And so we know the meaning of this riddle because we've read verses 5 through 9, and these groomsmen, these companions, didn't have verses 5 through 9 before them. The Philistines had no idea what this riddle meant. And for us, the meaning is clear. The eater, or the strong one, is the lion. The something to eat, the something sweet, Is the honey. The Philistines, however, likely thought it meant something else. Out of the eater, us Philistines, came something to eat. That is to say, our food. After all, this is the typical aftermath of a seven day drinking party. And out of the strong, Samson, came something sweet love, marriage. That's probably what they were thinking. And this is why they sought his wife's. help in trying to get out of Samson the meaning of the riddle, because they thought that, well, he was in love, and if he was going to tell anyone, it would have been his wife. But Samson kept the meaning from her. Samson kept the meaning from his parents. Samson kept the meaning from these goyim. Goyim is just the Hebrew word for Gentiles or the nations. Samson kept the meaning from these goyim, these Philistines. And he even adds a rather insulting riddle about his supposedly beloved wife in verse 18. Perhaps this is the verse that stands out in the whole text. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Those are not charming words, even back then, okay? She who was a day ago right in his eyes is now nothing but a cow in his sight. And Samson's first riddle is similar to Bilbo's final riddle to Gollum. What have I got in my pocket? What are you talking about? That's not a riddle. How is that a riddle? That's not fair. Surely these Philistines are objecting to Samson. That's not fair. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? No, no. And you remember Gollum says, okay, fine, I get get three guesses. If that's what we're going to do, Hands? No. A knife? No. String? Or nothing. Wrong and wrong again. Oh, for four. And you know, Gollum says he tricks us. He's tricksy. Samson's tricksy. Samson tricks us, these Gollum goyim would no doubt mutter. How dare Samson play us like that? It's unfair. We see here that even the best of men are men at best, as is often said. This judge was unique. Samson was specially set apart, but he turns out to be a failure every time he sees himself through his own mirror of glory. He does excellent, mighty things for the Lord when the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. But when he seeks to boast in himself he soon realizes that all glory, all power, all dominion are not his, but they they are God's, they are the Lord's. When the mighty fall, we glimpse not the glory of the man, but the grace of the Lord that had been upholding him the whole time. Truly, dear ones, we lament our sins. We must lament our sins. And so be humbled by God's powerful grace, that if we do anything that is good, anything that can be considered excellent or commendable or mighty or patient, self control, it's because of God, the God of all grace. Now, verse 4 is the key to this whole text. It says His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So the question is, who was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines? Some understand Samson to be seeking a chance to take down these Philistines. That's why he, well, that's why he gets with this Philistine daughter. Because he wanted to get on the inside and then destroy the Philistines from within. Maybe earn their trust externally with, through some alliance and then take down the Philistines. But the better understanding is that it is the Lord who is seeking the Philistines. In fact, the word Lord immediately comes before the word he. It was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity. The Lord was seeking an opportunity. Dale Ralph Davis says, Samson appears to be driven only by his own glands, for she is right in my eyes, rather than by any hidden anti-Philistinism. We might give Samson a little more credit than he ought to have, In fact, in chapter 14, 15, 16, we see a man who loves Philistinism. And we see the Lord who who is slowly removing that love from the man. But this has been the heart of the Lord in the book of Judges, that he seeks the enemies of Israel. Even when the judge does not, even when Israel as a whole doesn't care to. But the Lord has a purpose of his own. The Lord will carry out all of his sovereign purpose. Our gracious God, our divine commander in chief, seeks and destroys all of his and our enemies the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so it's the Lord who is working, it was the Lord who was seeking opportunity. Not considering Samson's worthiness, not considering Israel's worthiness, it is the Lord who is at work. The Lord worked through Samson to tear that lion to pieces, prophetically and symbolically foretelling the destruction of all those Leonine nations that do not roar the name of the Lord with joy and faith. The Lord worked through Samson to tear apart Ashkelon, a Philistine town just 25 miles southwest of Timnah. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon his men to support his judges and to suppress the enemies. Every single time in the book of Judges, the Spirit of the Lord is upon or clothes or rushes on his judge. It is either to support the judge or to suppress the enemy of the judge. Othniel, in chapter 3, verse 10, had the Spirit of the Lord on him. And so he judged Israel and was victorious over Cushan-Rishathaim. remember the man of double wickedness. Gideon, in Judges 6, verse 34, was clothed with the Holy Spirit. And thus clothed, he can call to himself the troops to take down the Midianites. Or in Jephthah, Judges eleven twenty-nine, 29, with the Spirit upon him, he makes this godly vow to the Lord. Or with Samson, he tears apart the lion. As the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, he tears apart that lion. Or he takes down the Philistines. And then in chapter 15, he breaks loose from the ropes that were on his arms. He picks up a donkey jawbone and goes to town on a thousand men with the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon him. All of these men had the Spirit upon them, in them, indwelling them, giving them a measure of his work. Clothing them within measure. But they did not have the fullness of the Spirit. There is only one who does, that is the Son of God, the angel of the Lord. With the Spirit beyond measure, Jesus Christ tears apart the lion that seeks someone to devour. He puts the last nail in the coffin as he allows his hands to be nailed to the cross. The Dutch theologian Van Maastricht says, The devil may be a roaring lion, but our Samson has torn him to pieces. The Lord uses our weaknesses for his glory. Charles Simeon summarizes Samson's life, judgeship, quite well. Of all the judges that were in Israel, there was not one who committed so many faults, or by whom God wrought so many miracles as Samson. And that's what makes Samson a riddle of a man, a complex figure. And some will say, this Samson is the best judge that pictures Christ. And others would say, he is the judge that pictures Israel the best as Israel is devolved in his sin. Because the Lord uses him to do incredible things, and we see Samson doing incredibly sinful things as well. And so despite Samson's imperfections, in fact, indeed, even through them, God works out all things. Dale Ruff Davis says, neither Samson's foolishness nor his stubbornness is going to prevent Yahweh from accomplishing his design. In other words, Samson is not going to get in the way of God's plan. Instead, God is going to use Samson in the way of God's plan for the glorification of the name of the Lord. God uses us who do what is right in our own eyes for what is beautiful and glorious in his sight. That does not mean that our sin is ever glorious in his sight. Of course not. How could a holy God Look favorably upon evil. But it is to say that God uses even our sins. God uses, yes, all of our sufferings, all of the trials of various kinds that come our way. He uses also our own waywardness, our own sins for His glory. There are countless examples of that in Scripture. We never have license to sin but always reason to marvel at the infinitely wise outworking of all things for the glory of God and for the good of God's elect. The greatest riddle seems to be this. How can the thrice holy God save wretched sinners? If I am really as sinful as the Bible tells me I am, and I am, And if God is really the holy God that the Bible tells us that he is, and he is, how can unrighteousness dwell in the house of holiness? How can a wretched, miserable, hostile sinner be in the presence of the holy God? And we know the answer to that riddle. We know the meaning of that riddle, don't we? That the greatest riddle is solved by the greatest judge who, in the fullness of time, revealed the divine mystery of salvation. That God the Son became man. And he lived a perfect life under the law, born of woman, subjected to all the law of God. And he kept every single bit of it. And he suffered. And he died. Not for any sin he committed for all those that we did and he was buried and on the third day because he was that righteous son the father raises him from the dead and now he is ascended and he is seated to the right hand of God the father almighty the answer to the riddle is Christ that's the gospel he is the gospel let's pray our gracious God We do thank you for your salvation. We thank you for your sovereign decree. Some of the things that we end up finding out as you work out providentially, all things according to the counsel of your will. And other things we do not know. And one day we will know. And still other things we will never know because we will never be God. We're thankful that we serve and worship the God who is all-glorious, who is all-holy, who is all-loving, and who has saved wretched sinners like us. We thank you for this grace. We pray also that this grace would be used by your Spirit to transform us because it is our it is desire and our, our spiritual interest to be more and more like Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.